Football theming probably seemed a little bit more appropriate before last Sunday when everyone's hopes and dreams were, were crushed, huh? So don't worry. Okay. You guys wanted to see it again, apparently. You know, don't worry, though. It's only like, I don't know, four more months of having to be reminded that the Lions did not make it to the Super Bowl, but they had a good run, so I'm happy about that. Uh, the question for today is, have you ever pondered all of the things all throughout time that have ever been created or, or been invented by, by men over generations and generations. These things that are created and invented and they, they make life better for those in the generations that would come after them. Um, how many great minds all throughout history have set out to create something uh, because they saw that there was a need. Maybe they saw suffering, right? Maybe they saw struggle and they knew that they had the skill or they had the intellect that was necessary to make a difference, and then they, 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 they set out, and the thing that they created, that ended up becoming almost like their legacy. Uh, their names became synonymous with their creation going forward in time, that, that decades and decades, and in many cases, even centuries after their death, people still know their names because of the way that their work has benefited society. Uh, so we'll play a little interactive game this morning. I know you guys love this. We'll make sure everybody's awake and ready to go. I'm going to give you a name. And if you know what that person invented, what their legacy is, you can go ahead and shout it out. Uh, to, to test where we kind of are in the room, though, I'm going to start with a harder one, okay? Um, so if I say the name Gutenberg, the printing press. Thank you, Gek. You're on top of it this morning. So yeah, the movable typecast printing press. Right? He created this thing that now uh, books would be able to be mass-produced. Literacy would be brought to the masses. How about Alexander Graham Bell? The telephone, right? We can now send messages actually using our voice, uh, traveling across great distances. No more smoke signals for us, right? No more telegrams or carrier pigeons. We had evolved beyond that. The, the world was changed for the better. Life was made more convenient for man. A local one. How about Henry Ford? I heard a lot of different things, but I think of the assembly line. That's what I think of when I hear Henry Ford, right? That, that his assembly line, this new way to manufacture automobiles, would, would drive down the cost 
so that the average American family could leave the horse and buggy behind and they would be able to drive a Ford. Another easy one, Thomas Edison. The light bulb, right? Without Thomas Edison, how would I see all of your beautiful smiling faces this morning, right? Candles. Candles. That would be romantic, Jim, but not efficient. All right, let's go back to a harder one, okay? I have, there's got to be somebody that will know this one. James Naismith. Basketball, right. James Naismith, he invented basketball. Without James Naismith, what would the Detroit Pistons stink at? All right, last one. This one's a picture clue. I doubt anyone's going to recognize this man, but if we could put this picture up on the screen. There we go. Uh, no one knows who this is. I'm not even going to ask for guesses. I'm going to tell you. His name is Anton Kolisch. I may be pronouncing his name wrong, but no one will know. No one here probably knows what Anton is remembered for or what he is famous for or what the great invention is that is associated with his name. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about his history. Uh, Anton was a German chemist. Uh, he was born back in 1888. He worked for the pharmaceutical company Merck. Uh, and Anton was working on a project that, that he hoped was going to have great impact on his fellow man. He was working on developing a drug that would control bleeding. Right? Anton was trying to do good work. It was work that I'm sure that he hoped one day was going to save many lives. And in his experimentation, in his quest to create this miracle drug, uh, Anton accidentally created a new chemical compound in 1912. Uh, it's called methylene dioxymethamphetamine. Uh, Anton didn't know what it was that he created, but he did know that it was new. And he thought maybe one day this is a, a drug, a chemical compound that in some way, shape, or form is going to benefit humanity. So in 1912, he filed for a patent on his newly discovered chemical. Two years later, in 1914, his patent was approved. And then in 1916, Anton was killed in World War I. After his death, this, this new chemical compound that he discovered, uh, it was basically forgotten about. It sat on a shelf for decades and decades until about the 1980s when methylene dioxymethamphetamine all of a sudden became very, very popular. But it did not become popular in a doctor's office. It became very popular in nightclubs and raves. Uh, methylene dioxymethamphetamine was a mouthful. So the young people, they started to call Anton's chemical com compound MDMA or ecstasy. You see, Anton unknowingly created a social party drug, this drug that is intended to give you the sense of euphoria. He set out to create something that was going to be of great benefit to his fellow man. But years and years later, the thing that he created was being used by kids just to get high. It was just being used by people that were desperate to feel something. This was his life work. This is his legacy. Still to this day, if you Google his name, it is synonymous with the creation of ecstasy. This is not how he hoped that his life's work would be used. But that is how hurt and broken people corrupted it. Perhaps in 1916, when he took his last breath, perhaps he was still hopeful that his discovery would be used, that, that methylene dioxymethamphetamine one day would become a miracle drug, and that his name would be remembered alongside of the Gutenbergs and the Graham Bells and the Edisons of history. 
But again, what he had hoped would be used for good, men used for nefarious reasons. It's an awkward transition, but today we're going to be reading in the second chapter of John. Specifically, the second half of the second chapter of John. Uh, it's a very well-known piece of scripture. You could call it popular. You could call it famous. Maybe you could even call it a little bit infamous. Uh, this is the story uh, that, that many people will call Jesus's righteous anger story. It's the story of Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers and, and those that were there to, to sell um, animals to, to worshipers for sacrifice. Uh, it's a very common, very often taught on passage. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, it's one of the few places in John's gospel where we do get to see direct crossover with the other gospels. This same story of Jesus cleansing the temple is found in Matthew 21. It's found in Mark 11 and also in Luke 19. This is one of the accounts of Jesus' life that all four gospel authors record for us. If you think back to week one, I told you only about 10% of the information in John's gospel uh, is not unique. So this is one of those glimpses of the, the not unique part. But even though the story that's being recalled today is not unique, the timing in which John presents it to us is. This is one of those events that we all know. In our synoptic gospels, we know when this event happens. We know when this occurs, when Jesus goes to the temple, chases out the money changers. Uh, John himself even tells us when this does happen. If you start in verse 13, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All four gospel authors tell us that this event took place at the time of the Passover. Uh, specifically, uh, they, they place the other three, I should say our synoptic authors, they place this event happening after Jesus' triumphant entry that we are all familiar with, but, but before the time that he would be betrayed. We know this story as one of, those, one of those events in which Jesus stirred up the religious rulers of the day, one of these things that he did that directly led to their decision to want to put him to death. But John tells us of this table-flipping event right at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning, it's right in chapter 2. It occurs immediately. Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns water into wine, and then boom, Jesus is at the Passover in Jerusalem. In the timeline of John's writing, Jesus may still have years to live, whereas in the, others, in the synoptics, he would have days. So when you notice something like this, it's very important for us to ask, why is there a discrepancy in the timeline? Uh, some have tried to say, well, perhaps this is something that Jesus did more than once. Uh, that seems very unlikely to me. I think the first time you would cause this type of ruckus, they probably you know, have your picture at the front gate and they have the man, you know, do not admit this man anymore. Um, I think the timeline discrepancy is, again, it goes back to what we talked about in week one of this sermon series, is acknowledging that John, the gospel, and John, the author, is very unique. The book that John wrote that we have recorded for us in our Bible, it was written with a very specific purpose, a different purpose. Again, when we compare it to our other gospel writings, if you think of, of the gospel that Luke wrote, Luke is very straightforward with us, and he tells us why he is writing a gospel. He says, you know, I have this, this Greek or this Roman benefactor, and it's my job to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ. That's what Luke set out to do. John never makes any such claim to that type of an endeavor. John, John has not set out to write an orderly history book. 
John has set out to write something that would argue, something that would persuade people, something that would persuade you sitting in this room today to, to see the majesty and the status of Jesus Christ as God, to understand that Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb. The same way that Luke told us his intent in writing his gospel, John told us his intent as well. Uh, we fast forward to John chapter 20, it's verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? John's not writing an informational textbook for you. He tells you right off the bat, he says, I didn't record everything that happened. But what I did record for you was written with one express purpose, to persuade you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that if you believe in him, you will have life. John writes as an evangelist, and he writes as an evangelist that has a Christian perspective. We see this right off the bat if you just glimpse back in your Bibles to, to verse 13. You see, John refers to the Passover as the Jewish Passover. It's a subtle illusion, but, but it's, it's there because John wants us to move our eyes away from what was and, and what is coming for the Christian. So I believe that when John sat down and John wrote, John is not restrained by a timeline. John is going to give us facts of what happened. And, and yes, he may take a liberty here or there with the timeline, but that does not affect the authenticity of the events that we read about in this book. John is telling us what happened on this one fateful day in the temple right now. He's telling us about this in chapter 2 instead of telling us in chapter 13 or 14 or 15 because there is an important promise in this scripture that John the evangelist wants you to hear right off the bat. So again, it is Passover time. And Jesus does head to the temple. We're going to read in verses 14 and 17 what happens when he gets there. It says, In the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples, uh, tables. I'm sorry. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. One of the worst sermons I ever heard, at least heard live, I've heard plenty of very bad sermons online, but one of the worst sermons that I ever sat through live was delivered on this piece of scripture, and honestly I can't tell you if it was here in John or from one of the other uh, Gospels. I think I'm safe in saying this. The chances of the guy ever hearing this would be very slim. But it was delivered by the, the youth pastor um, at the church, or the youth pastor that preceded me at the church I was at in Florida. And again, not sure which one of the accounts that he read from. But he was a very big man, bearded man, um, very intimidating kind of voice. And as he got up to deliver this sermon on this piece of scripture, he, he mustered something deep down inside of himself. And from the get-go, he just he charged face first into this, this message, a message that he proudly entitled Righteous Anger. And as he talked, his face would grow more and more red. As he stood behind that big golden oak pulpit that he would repeatedly bang his hand on throughout that sermon, 
Uh, he, he went on and delivered a message that was essentially just an excuse to justify his own anger. And through his message on this piece of scripture, right, all the typical suspects were, were named, right? No one escaped his wrath that day. Uh, the LBGTQ community, he was angry at you and he told you the politicians of a certain political party, those who vote for that political party, he, he was angry at you. Public school system, he was mad at you too. Uh, churches that don't have a proper understanding of baptism, you did not escape his wrath that day. He pounded his fist on that pulpit more than once at you. And he justified spewing out anger because he looked at this scripture that we just read of a table-flipping, whip-slinging Jesus, and he said anger is not a problem. Being angry at the things that Jesus would be angry about is not a problem, and you know what? Sometimes I'm going to need to flip a few tables in my life if I'm going to get the world's attention. It was a message devoid of love, devoid of grace, and most importantly, there was no call to repentance. It was simply a sermon to justify anger, and it's anger that honestly, most of us, we all feel sometimes. But it was self-satisfaction. It was reading the scripture and hearing what you wanted to hear, thinking that the, the, the greatest trait of Jesus that he could emulate in his life was righteous anger. And I particularly remember how sad it made me that day of how many people in our church ate it up. How many hand claps and how many amens were given that day. Because again, it was anger that they all felt as well. But no one ever gave them a microphone and gave them permission to express it. Right, that man that day, he set out to preach a message with one goal in mind and it was to rile up the church body. And he completely forgot about seeking the lost. For Jesus. So I want to look at this from another perspective today, something that I believe to be a more authentic and less uh, selfish perspective. Um, we have a, a picture of the, the temple here, at least what it would have looked like in Jesus's time after its most recent renovation. And I know that things are kind of hard to see on our screen up there, so I brought along my handy dandy Let's see, does it work? Yep, my handy-dandy laser pointer. And I want to just point out some things to you about this temple before we get into to kind of explaining Jesus' reaction here. Uh, a lot of you probably already are familiar with how the temple was laid out, but it was kind of this um, interlocking uh, set of courtyards. And in these courtyards, different people were allowed to advance to different levels. In the center, we had the Holy of Holies. We had the place where the high priest would go to interact directly with God. Outside of that, we had a courtyard of the priests, Right? You're not the high priest, you can't go all the way in, but you're a priest, you can get this far. After that we had, oh there we go, the courtyard of the Israelites would have been right about here. The courtyard of the Israelites was if you were, um, um, uh, could chase your genealogy back to the forefathers and you were a man, you were allowed to go into the courtyard of the Israelites. Now they didn't forget about you ladies, okay? They had a courtyard of the women as well, that was right after the entrance to that center section. So women were allowed in, you weren't allowed any further, and there was plenty of rules about how you had to be clean and all this kind of fun stuff if you were gonna even make it that far. But today what I wanna focus on is what is outside of this center section. If you can see this here, this section was called the Gentiles courtyard that we see outside of that center uh, uh, section there. And the courtyard of the Gentiles, that was as close as any curious outsider was ever allowed to come to God. 
Right, if someone like me, right, uh, I'm of German descent, you know, if someone like me wanted to come and they wanted to learn about the God of the Jews and I came to the temple in Jerusalem knowing that this was the, the center of everything happening with their faith, I was allowed to come through the gates and I could stand in this large courtyard, but that was as far as I was ever allowed to go, right? Daniel would never be able to go in and see what the priests were doing behind those walls, never be able to hear what it is that they're talking about. Uh, I could not go into the court of the Israelites and rub shoulders with the Israelite men and ask them questions about theology. I couldn't even go into the courtyard of the women and inquire of them. Right? These outer courtyards at this time was as far as I could go in my exploration to discover the truth about the one true God. You already know that the, the Jewish law at this time, it required sacrifices from the people. Right? If the people were going to be forgiven at designated times of the year, all the Jews would come and they would travel from all over the land and they would come to Jerusalem. Now again, they needed animals for these sacrifices and, and traveling with an animal very often was either inconvenient or impossible. So there was a very valuable service that was offered here at the temple where weary travelers would come and they would be able to procure the necessary animals that they would need to have sacrifice to make atonement for their sin, right? Animals were absolutely sold here at the temple. Now, that in of itself, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think the animals being sold to the pilgrims that were coming is something that there was a law against. I think the same was true with the money changers that we read about. You see, you gotta remember the currency of the day that was being used, it was the currency of the Roman Empire. That means all of the coins you would have had in your pocket that you would have done your shopping with every single day, they were engraved with the face of Caesar on them. The face of a pagan who called himself God. So you could not go and make your offering at the temple to, to, to pay your tithe to the temple with these unclean cult coins. So again, yes, there was a necessary service that needed to be offered to these pilgrims as they would come, that they would be able to exchange their Roman currency for a form of currency that would be accepted as offering in the temple. And this is why this is very important to understand how this is laid out and, and what was actually happening here because you know, as a kid, a long, long time ago, what I was taught is that Jesus was upset in this scripture because it was perverse and immoral to quote-unquote sell things in church. Right? That's, that's what I was taught. I remember uh, it was kind of taught that uh, you know, the, the churches that have coffee shops in their lobbies, right, or the churches that, that would sell you a t-shirt with their logo on them. Right? I was taught by people who didn't like that style of church, and they, they pointed to this scripture to say why that was wrong. Now, eventually I came to understand that, again, that's not what's happening here. That this is not why Jesus is so upset. This is not why Jesus acts the way that he does. I was just simply taught by men that had an ax to grind against a certain style of church. So, so then what I was taught was it's not that the animals are being sold that's a problem. It's not that money is being exchanged is a problem. Jesus is upset because those who are doing those things are, are selling those who are selling and exchanging are taking advantage of the weary travelers. Right? These pilgrims, again, these people that are coming from great distances that are doing all it is that they can to try to stay on the right side of the law, to try to, to be forgiven. And then these men are coming and they're using dishonest scales when they change out their currency. Right? They're selling them defective animals at, at extraordinary prices. And sadly, this is probably actually true 
Right? I think we, we've all experienced how people are. Right? When, when people spot weakness or, or neediness, often people are quick to prey upon that. But this week, as I read and as I studied this passage, a third option for the reason behind Jesus' displeasure was presented to me, and it made me think. All of the business that was being transacted at the temple, all of the hustle and bustle and all of the noise in this this pop-up market, where did it all happen? Did this take place in the court of the Israelites? Did it take place in even the court of the women? No. Everything that, that was happening, all of the crowd... It was happening in the court of the Gentiles. The the merchants had taken over the place that had been set aside as the only place where those who were the farthest away from God could come and get close to their creator. It was the one designated place that was there at that time, and it had been overrun by a flea market. You know, when Jesus went to the temple and taught, Where he taught was in the court of the Gentiles. And now it's Passover time, and and Jesus arrives at his father's house. It's one of the, the busiest times of the year. The greatest opportunity he may have had to teach. And what he sees are businessmen galore, rubbing shoulder to shoulder with religious hypocrites, taking up the space in which the lost could have come. All of the space where Gentiles, those again who are hopelessly lost, could have come. He, right, the place where Jesus could have taught them about his father's kingdom, were overrun by people who were enriching themselves. People who were more worried about the application of the traditions of the found than of the seeking of the lost. And just perhaps this is part of what angered Jesus so much that day, that in his disgust that he would flip tables, that he would chase animals and their handlers out of the courtyard with a leather whip. Again, this is recorded in all of our Gospels. When when Mark records Jesus' words in this moment, uh, he does so slightly different than John. Uh, Mark records Jesus, um, maybe not quoting, but at least inferring to a passage, to a piece of prophecy from Isaiah. Uh, It's Isaiah 56, 7. I want to read this to you. It says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Because even if we travel all the way back to Isaiah's time, God was already calling out to his people. God was already dropping hints, telling them that there would be a time that his house would be a place of prayer for all people. But the Jews in the first century, they they didn't quite get that message yet. And again, this this one place where men from all nations could have come, this place that was set aside at this moment as the closest that they could get to the living God, they mucked it up. They turned it into a market. God's holy mountain was not available to all people. And I think Jesus saw this, and I think it broke his heart. And I think it broke the Father's heart. You need to understand how serious these divisions of the courts in the temple were at these times. They were not suggestions. If a Gentile came into the temple courts, and he wanted to learn about God, and if he found that the court, that outer court, was nothing but a flea market, that it was too loud and it was too busy for him to hear or to learn anything, 
If he decided that he was going to try to enter further into the complex, you know, thinking maybe there he'll find some quiet, maybe he'll find someone that could impart some wisdom or some insight, he would be greeted by a sign that read, if a Gentile crosses this point, we are not responsible for his death. They, they would kill the one that was there seeking God. So yes, I, I am convinced that Jesus was not pleased that people were making money off of his father's house so gratuitously. I am convinced that Jesus was upset that the, the pilgrims, that the needy, that they were being exploited. But I'm also convinced that what drove Jesus to act in a way that, quite frankly, we really don't see him act elsewhere, is that God's chosen people shut themselves in, that they forgot that the Lord's house was to be a place of prayer for all nations, that they excluded those that were coming and seeking truth in the name of their tradition or, or in the name of, of gaining power or wealth. That Jesus being fully God, as we, we discussed a few weeks ago, being one-third of that holy trinity uh, who put flesh on and walked among his own creation, that he looked at this temple and the courtyard and these good things that were created. He looked specifically at this outer courtyard that he would have desired to be there so that prophecy could be fulfilled so that his house would be a place where all people, not just Jews, would come and worship and pray and he looks around at the good thing that was created and he sees his father's house essentially being used like ecstasy at a rave in the mid-90s in an abandoned warehouse somewhere. And that's why we recall Anton. Let's just think about it. Let's say Anton was given the opportunity to look back down on earth 80 years later and see how his great creation of MDMA was being used. He probably would get kind of excited, maybe a little bit anxious to see how his miracle drug, how, how was it benefiting people after my death? You know, maybe did it end up being used to stop that profuse bleeding? You know, was it maybe being used um, with psychiatric patients to help them find peace? Uh, could it bring, be being used as a, a, a pain relief for those that have chronic suffering? Right? Remember, this is his legacy. This is what people are going to remember his name for. He left this chemical compound behind, hoping that one day people would find out how they would use it and it would benefit the world. But as he looks down excitedly, all he sees are anxious and depressed and lonely and overstimulated college students abusing his chemical compound to get high. How might he react? How might you react? Could you not see him in that moment? If you were in his shoes, could you not envision yourself swatting those pills out of, out of some kid's hand, yelling at them that this is not what I worked so hard for, right? This is not why I left this for you. You are ruining a perfectly good thing that I left behind for you. And maybe that's how Jesus felt as he looked at his temple being abused, having its true meaning forgotten having this place that specifically that he, he wanted to be used to teach all of the people about his kingdom overrun again by the equivalent of teenagers on ecstasy. Jesus causes this great scene, but after he causes this scene too, he does not just run off. And he stays and he faces the men with whom he had just made enemies. And as we begin to wrap up today, I, I want to read that scripture to you of what happens when these men approach Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
So starting in verse 18, it says, The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Again, important to remember through this entire series, everything that we read in this gospel is always written from a post-resurrection point of view. And it's always written with one express purpose, again, to evangelize the lost. This is why John gives us a glimpse in verse 22 to what the disciples are thinking, right? what they're remembering after Jesus had raised from the dead. The Jewish leaders at the temple, they see what Jesus does. They heard everything that Jesus had to say. They've already heard him call the temple to Yahweh his father's house. Right? That in enough is already enough for them to bring him up on charges of blasphemy. But they don't immediately take that bait. Right? They offer Jesus more and more rope, hoping that he will hang himself that he will say even more damaging words that they're going to be able to use to build their case against him. And as always, Jesus never disappoints. Right? What he says is, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And this is the greatest promise. The greatest, most important promise that anyone ever has or ever will make. But the Jews, they don't hear a promise that is draped in the backdrop of prophecy. They mistakenly hear a threat. They mistakenly assume that Jesus is alluding to the destruction of a great building, the destruction of the complex that they stood in, that Jesus would physically destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Their eyes were unable to see, their ears unable to hear what it was that he was truly saying. He was saying that all the pop, pomp and circumstance and rules of the temple, that they would soon be obsolete. And not obsolete because they were bad, not obsolete because they were wrong or that God made a mistake and changed his mind about how men should seek him or how men should worship him, but that all of the prophecy that had been given to their people over thousands and thousands of years was about to be fulfilled in one man who stood in front of them at that moment, Jesus. That soon there would be no need for an outer court of the Gentiles where those who were born outside of the nation of Israel would be able to gather hoping to just get a little glimpse of God. He's saying that through the Son, through Jesus, the gates to the innermost part of the temple would soon be opened. And all who would call upon the name of Christ, who resurrected from the dead, the one that defeated the grave, all would be able to be called children of God. So church, I don't want to hear this scripture being used to justify any of our anger against the sins of the world. What I do want is I want the sinfulness of the world to break all of our hearts, to call me to action. I want to remember every single time that I hear this story recalled in any of the gospel writings that there is a big world of lost people out there who haven't been able to get a glimpse of God because for too long we have mucked up the places where they have been invited to come and get close. 
Right? We have used the outer courts of our life for our own convenience or for our own comfort, not to seek the sinner. As you've heard me say plenty of times before, I believe that we can do both, that we can honor our God and we can also call out to the lost whom he loves. Pray with me.